0: How's it going, Bethel? You guys doing all right? Yeah? I'm not going to promise you that I'm going to be as exciting as the kids earlier, so don't be disappointed. First, let me just say I'm really excited to be up here uh, speaking this weekend. Really grateful for the opportunity. As most of you know, our fearless leader, Pastor Steve, is on a little preaching Sabbath. Apparently, you guys were driving him insane, so he had to uh, to get away from you guys. It's a true story. I don't know why you're laughing. but You know, I heard Chuck Swindoll say once that a man that preaches week in and week out to the same church is a hard worker. Without getting my nose too brown, I would just like to make mention of the blessing and the gift that God has given us in Steve. Um, a guy who works... Very hard at and loves what he does, and he also loves us. So I'm thankful for Steve and also thankful for this chance for him to get some time away. But it is good when he gets away because then some of us other guys get a chance to come up here and speak. And if you think about it that way, like, you should go away more often. (laughs) Take two months off, man. You deserve it. A little bit about me. My name is Tony Sorcy, and I'm married to my lovely and beautiful and very pregnant wife, Pam who is uh, eight months pregnant with our first girl. We already have two boys, so this will be our third child, which means Pam and I will be switching from a man-to-man defense to a zone, and uh, just making sure we have everybody covered there. But the princess is coming soon, and uh, she gets her own room while her brothers are left having to uh, share one. And uh, we just got done painting it yellow, and uh, she's coming soon, like four weeks, and uh, I can't wait. To meet her. Just a little bit more about me, because I know there are a number of you that come up and say, just what is it exactly that you do around here, Sorcy? Uh, what do you, you're here a lot, but uh, what, do, what do you do? Well, I'll tell you, I'm in my third year here at Bethel, and I primarily direct our young adult ministry, Transit. And just a quick little plug about that. If you're here, and you're college age or 20-something, we would love for you to come and visit us on a Tuesday night. We meet up in the student center uh, from 7 to 9 p.m., and we're just a group of college-age, 20-something. We're just trying to figure out how to Christian, live the Christian life at this stage in the game. So uh, I would encourage you to come and check that out. But I've been doing that for a while now, and, uh, and I love it. And I love all my, all my peeps over here. It's mostly them. Yeah, love you guys. Okay, my, uh, my topic this weekend is freedom from religion. And it was given to me a while ago, and I'm not sure why Steve gave it to me. Because growing up, the only kind of religion I was into was breaking commandments and getting in trouble. I was uh, was very, very religious in my efforts towards both of those things. I was very, very devout and worked very hard at being a knucklehead punk and making a mess out of my life. And for a while there, I actually did a really, really good job. But uh, even though I don't have a very religious past, God has been showing me this week is just been kind of pounding my head and my heart over these things that uh, I am very prone to religion. And so this message is perfect even for me. Well, I thought since we're talking about freedom from religion and religion itself, um, I thought it would be good first to define religion and what I mean by religion. When we're talking about religion, we're not talking about religion in a general sense. Religion in general is basically a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about. Who we are. And what are the most important things we should be doing as humans in light of those beliefs? That's just religion in general. It's not really one specific religion. It's more like a worldview, a lens through which we view the world. And everyone has a worldview, so that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about freedom from that. We're also not talking about the religion that James talks about in James one twenty seven, where he says that pure and undefiled religion before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's good religion. That's pure religion. We need more of that. Let's do that. What we're talking about is impure religion. The kind of religion that Jesus repeatedly exposed and condemned. The kind of religion that Jesus repeatedly spoke out against and reserved his harshest words for. I'm talking about the kind of religion that was mostly displayed in the group of people in the Bible called the Pharisees. This kind of religion existed in Jesus' time, and I'm pretty sure it's alive and well in this room right now. I'm talking about religion that says this. If I obey, then God will love and accept me. If I obey, then God will accept me and love me. See, religion is about earning and meriting God's favor and love through obedience and good works. And religion kind of sees God as cold and distant. And he's off in the distance with his arms folded. And his eyebrows are down. And he's up in heaven keeping moral score, moral record, counting, checking, see how we're behaving. And it's going to take nothing less than elbow grease and white knuckling our way to earning his love. If I do enough, if I'm good enough, then God will love me, then God will accept me. The gospel, on the other hand, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not about religion. And it shouldn't be confused with religion, though often it does. In fact, it stands in sharp contrast to to religion. Because while religion says, if I obey, then God will accept and love me, the gospel says this, I am accepted and loved by God through Christ, therefore I obey. I am accepted and loved by God through Christ, therefore I obey. And the gospel is not about earning God's love on your own merit and good works. It's about God accepting and loving you through the person and finished work of Christ, and out of that love and acceptance, you obey. Religion is about working hard, hoping to hear good news that God loves and accepts you, whereas the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, that God does love us and does accept us through his son Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus, religion's about you. Religion's about salvation through moral effort, the gospel is about salvation through grace. And because of that, religion needs to be seen not as a friend of the gospel, but as an enemy of the gospel what i want to do at the beginning here is i want to identify religion and i want to expose it by showing a few of its many faces and then show how the gospel of jesus christ is drastically and radically and altogether different from religion then i'm going to try to convince you that no one should ever be religious rather you should love and follow jesus instead so that's kind of the direction we're going here so just just know that so let's identify religion first thing we need to see is that religion is self-righteous religion is self-righteous self-righteousness is the root of all religion those who are religious derive their righteousness from their own personal deeds their own merits their own good works religion is about your performance what you have done religion is all about your own moral record Your own moral resume, here's my list, these are the things I've done, and oh, by the way, here's another list, these are the things I've never done. Have you ever heard anyone talk about their Christianity like this? Well, I know I'm a Christian because I've given this much money, I've been a good neighbor, I've served in this ministry, been going to church for this many years, I've led this small group, and out comes the credentials, out comes the list, and the list is very long, and it's all about what they've done. Or it's, I know I'm a Christian because I've never murdered anybody. I've never cheated on my husband or my taxes. I don't do this, and I've never done that. And the main distinction between religion and the gospel is that religion thinks it has a right relationship with God based on what you have or haven't done, instead of what Christ did. See, the gospel is about a righteousness not earned by us, but Christ who is our righteousness. The gospel is about gift Righteousness. A righteousness credited to us as a gift by faith. And this is what Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And that's what the song that we just sang, Power of the Cross, is all about. Look at what Paul says. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin. That's our sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And what Paul is describing here is that in the gospel, here's what's happening in the gospel. In the cross. God is taking my sin. Past present and future and he's placing it on christ who on the cross paid the penalty for my sin in full and in exchange by faith in christ and his finished work i receive his perfect spotless without blemish righteousness it's an exchange as one theologian coined it it's the great exchange all my sin goes to jesus his righteousness comes to me by faith and this righteousness, this righteousness from Christ is so perfect, it's so sufficient that you can't add to it. You cannot add to it. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus. And the assumption in religion is that your own works and deeds and righteousness are able to merit salvation and favor and right standing with God. But the scriptures get very graphic to prove the point that your works Your deeds, your own merit contributes nothing to your righteousness at all. In Philippians 3, starting in verse 4, you might recall the ex-murderer, Apostle Paul, starts talking about how he used to be very religious before becoming a Christian. And he starts listing off and naming all the things that were on his moral record, all the things that he thought brought him or made him righteous before God. And they were all things he had done. And Paul, reflecting on his own self-righteousness while being religious, wrote this in Philippians 3, 7, and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And what Paul is basically saying here in Philippians 3 is, here's all my self-righteousness. Here's this list. That filled up my moral record. Here's all my religious achievements. That's the gain he's talking about there in verse 7. I used to think they were gain to me. These were my religious assets. But I lost it. I trashed it all. Well, why, Paul? Why would you do that? And Paul says, because I came to see the surpassing worth and value of Christ. And after I came to see how righteous Christ is, I trashed everything that was on my religious resume, and I considered it rubbish. You guys know what that word rubbish means there? We don't really talk like that anymore. Well, that's rubbish. You know, it's like no one talks like that. No one normal. <laughs> the, the word means crap. And it's actually a little bit stronger than that. It means feces, stinky poopies as my three-year-old calls it. Paul is saying... I came to see how righteous and valuable Christ is. And all my achievements compared to him were like a pile of feces. And so I trashed it all that I may gain him. And then look what he says in verse 9. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, it's not self-righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. It's not religion and Jesus. No, religion gets trashed, and I put all my trust and confidence in Christ. There's only one source for righteousness in God's eyes, and there should be only one thing on your religious resume. Jesus, that's it. It's Jesus. We don't need anything else. So what's on your religious resume? Whose righteousness are you counting on Next, we're identifying religion here. Religion sees good people and bad people. Religion sees good people and bad people. Religion loves rules. I don't know if you knew this or not about religion, but it loves rules. It loves rules and lists of rules, and religion isn't happy with the rules it already has and wants more rules. Rules, rules, rules. Religion's all about rule keeping and list checking. It's about visible, outward checkpoints to gauge righteousness in order to ensure that we're good, we're the good guys. And because of that, it looks at others who don't keep their list of rules, and it looks down at them and views them as the bad guys. We're the good guys, we keep our rules, they're the bad guys, they break our rules. And in contrast, the gospel doesn't see good people and bad people. The gospel doesn't see people in terms of good and bad It sees sinners and Jesus. In the gospel, there's only one good guy. Jesus, that's it. Everyone else is a sinner. Everyone else needs a savior. One good guy, everyone else is bad and needs to be rescued. See, foundational to the truth of the gospel is that we're all sinners. And you might be wondering, is there an app for this? Do they make an app for sin? No, there's no app for sin because we do this naturally. Okay, We are sinners by nature and choice. Paul says in Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous. There's no app. You don't need to download this. You produce this naturally. So since the gospel doesn't make the good and bad distinction, but sees everyone as sinners, the only question the gospel has is, what kind of sinner are you? Just what kind of sinner are you? Are you a sinner who's blind to your sin and sees no need for a savior? Or are you aware of your own sin, sorrowful over your sin, and sees your own need to be rescued? The question is this, are you repentant or unrepentant? And this is the whole point of the story in John 8, where the good guy Pharisees, who don't think they're the sinners, bring this sinful, adulterous woman before Jesus, exposing her sin in broad daylight in front of a whole crowd of people, And they bring her before Jesus and say, this woman's been caught in adultery. The law says the stoner, Jesus, what are you going to do about it? And Jesus, in one of the most famous lines in all of scripture, a lot of you guys know it. He says this, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. What does Jesus do? He exposes their sin. They're the good guys bringing the sinner before Jesus. I'm not a sinner. We're not sinners. She is. Jesus, what are you going to do about it? And Jesus exposes their sin. And what happens next? All the religious good guys throw their stones down, and they walk away unrepentant in light of their sin being exposed. And the promiscuous, sinful, adulterous woman is left standing before God with her sin exposed. And what does Jesus do? In the story, Jesus extends grace to her by loving her and not condemning her. And in light of that grace, and in light of that love from Jesus extended to her, she repents and embraces Christ as Lord. Both sides had their sin exposed, but she was repentant and the Pharisees were not in Bethel. We better hope that we're this wicked, sinful, adulterous woman and not the clean-cut religious guys. We better hope. People who understand the gospel are characterized by repentance because they view themselves as sinners saved by grace and sinners growing in grace, so they embrace repentance as a gift from God whereby they daily experience his grace and get to shed sin that keeps them from enjoying God and loving him more fully. In the gospel, repentance isn't seen as a negative. It's seen as a gift. Next is this. Religion focuses on the outward and the external. Man, I love telling people what I do for a living. I love it. Because there's like this deep-seated, wicked spot in my heart that loves messing with people. Because people think I usually do tattoos. They're like, bro, you do tattoos? I'm like, no. And then I tell them what I actually do. And the reaction's usually the same. It's one of those like if I had a nickel for every time kind of a thing. Well, you don't look like you. And I'm like, yeah, I've been told that before. And I want to say like, what am I supposed to look like? I've read the Bible. I have illustrated Bible dictionaries in my office. There's no mention of a uniform, and I've not seen any pictures. It's not like, hey, here's the uniform for the gig. Like, no, there's no uniform. I was at Baker Square this one time, and I was sitting down and drinking coffee and eating some pie, French silk, anyone? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. And I'm reading my Bible, and this waitress, she walks past me, and she wasn't even my waitress. She's like carrying a plate, like, a, you know, some plates to the kitchen. And she goes, she comes past and goes, like, while she's walking past, hey, not that you have tattoos and that you're reading your Bible, but did you know the Bible says you're not supposed to have tattoos? And then she just walked away. I'm like, like, what do you say to that? I'm like, yes, sister, thank you for sharing with me the word. And encouraging me from Leviticus. I appreciate that. She just like walked by and just exposed my sin. It was like this religious drive-by. I just got like tagged. And I'm just left like, what? Out of all the non-tattooed people reading their Bibles, you decided to pick me to share that helpful bit of information. Thank you, sister. There's this other, I could go, I have stories, all right? There's this other time when I first became a Christian, me and another guy were talking to this very religious woman about the gospel. And we were both kind of talking to her, you know, back and forth. And, we, and she was dialoguing with us. And I started talking, she stopped me mid-sentence. And she puts her hand up like this, she says, I'm having a very hard time listening to you about this because of those tattoos. And then she turned to listen to my tattoo-less friend. She just dismissed me altogether because of the way I looked. See, religion focuses on the external and the outward, and it never takes time to go beyond that to get to know someone's heart. Religious people see others who don't look like them, and they automatically assume the worst they must be a sinner, they must need Jesus, they must need benevolence. Religious people tend to overlook is that it was the people in scripture like the prostitutes and the tax collectors And the sinners and the broken and the marginal that jesus was drawn to and they were drawn to him They were the ones going to his bible studies sitting under his teaching and hanging out with him And the pharisees would get so ticked about this. They would say things like this. This man receives sinners and eats with them Ah! You better watch out jesus Hanging out with those sinners. See, it's we're not the sinners, they're the sinners. Religious people also tend to overlook that Jesus used murderers and tax collectors and political extremists and loudmouths and rough, feisty, uneducated, blue-collar dudes to turn the world upside down by spreading the gospel all over the place. Yeah. Study the disciples, study who they are. They're not the clean cut guys. The gospel is not about how you look, which is a huge problem for religious types because they place so much emphasis on external and outward righteousness. The Pharisees were very focused on external righteousness so as to be outwardly seen by others. That's why when they gave money, they threw it down into the jar, making a ton of noise. When they prayed, they prayed out loud on street corners so that everyone would hear. And when they fasted, they did so melodramatically so that everyone would know what they were doing. Religion is completely focused on external righteousness. Wanting to be seen, wanting to be heard, acknowledged, recognized. How do you look? What do others think? all religion is is outward behavior it's just list checking it's just rule keeping outward external righteousness and jesus has some of the harshest words for religion like this he said it's like a whitewashed tomb you're like a freshly painted tomb on the outside you look really nice and white and pretty and clean cut but inside you are dead that's religion It's about looking good and spiritual on the outside. And on the inside, you are dead and dry. It's all surface. Religion only scratches the surface. And some of you grew up in churches like this and circles like this, where how you were perceived and how you acted outwardly was of first importance. And the heart was rarely, if ever, addressed. And your attendance and your apparel on a Sunday morning was more important than anything else. And all the preaching and all the teaching was solely focused on behavior. And all the while, what was really going on in the heart was completely overlooked. Never shared. Never talked about it. Just suppress it. Just keep it down. Don't let people know that I struggle like this. Religion seeks to change a person from the outside in. And it uses things like fear and guilt and pressure to accomplish that. Religion is nothing more than outward behavior conform to a list of rules. Since the gospel believes that we're all sinners, we don't have to pretend like everything's okay. We don't have to put on a mask. We can share even our deepest hurts and struggles and sins because we believe that we're sinners. The gospel works from the inside out. And is about getting at the heart of the matter where it seeks to truly transform and change by grace through love and kindness extended to us from God in Christ. That's the gospel. It's about the heart. Next, religion is about getting from God. Religion is about getting from God. Religion, because it's based on performance and working and earning favor and love from God, when it does so, it expects to be rewarded and blessed in return because of a job well done. Religion sees God as an object, a means. And it's really about using morality and obedience and church attendance and rule keeping to get God to give you the things you want. Religion's not so much concerned with pleasing God and obeying God for God's sake. It's about obeying God for your sake. It's putting God in your debt, manipulating him and leveraging him to a place where he owes you God, I've done everything you've asked me to do. Now I expect a good life. My prayers to be answered, a good job, a healthy family, and a pass into heaven when I die. Because I've obeyed, because I perform well, I deserve it. You owe me. Religion is in it for the gifts of the giver and not the giver himself. See, religion doesn't truly believe that God himself is able to fulfill and satisfy it sees the things that God is able to give them as what is truly going to satisfy and make them happy. The gospel is not about getting things from God. It's about getting God. The gospel is about getting God. God. The gospel recognizes that we have no ability or resources at all in order to leverage God. Rather, it sees ourselves as separated sinners and desperate need of one to come and rescue us and reconcile us to God. The gospel sees God himself as valuable and desirable and treasure. God himself is who I want. I want to be restored to a right relationship with him. And Christ comes in as hero and savior. And through the cross, he reconciles us and restores us to a right relationship with him. And we get God. In the gospel, you get God. A right standing, restored, reconciled relationship with your heavenly father. Where he takes you in and accepts you into his family. And he loves you as his own son and daughter. Where he loves you not because of who you are, but in spite of who you are. God loved us when we were at our darkest. The gospel wants him not to get things from him. Which leads to the next thing. Religion sees trial as punishment. Religion sees trial as punishment. Because religion is about using obedience as leverage to get what you want from God, when you don't get what you want from God, you view it as unfair. And when your life turns out to be something other than what you expected God to deliver you, you become angry and frustrated and bitter towards God. God, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. Even further, when trial and hardships come into your life, it often gets misinterpreted as punishment. You then think that God is out to get you because you haven't performed well enough. That's why as soon as trial comes, you think God is punishing you. So he's the one you run from instead of the one you run to because you think he's harming you. How many of you, after entering into, the tri- into a trial or hardship, have wondered, Okay, God, why are you angry at me? What thing did I do or didn't I do that you're getting me back for? God, why are you punishing me? And the gospel differs greatly on this point. In the gospel, God lays on Jesus Christ the full penalty for our sin. And God, who is holy and hates sin, rather than punishing us and giving us what we deserve, he punishes Christ in our place on the cross and gives him what we deserve. And Jesus pays for our sin completely in the cross. If you're a Christian, Jesus got punished in your place. It would be unjust then for God to make you pay as well for sin, It's unjust to pay twice, punish twice. So you have two options on this point. Either Jesus didn't fully pay for sin, and you're making up for it in trial. Or Jesus did fully pay for sin, and hardship and trial have a completely different meaning. In the gospel, God is not angry. He is our Father who loves us. And we don't view trial as punishment because we know that Christ was punished in our place. In the gospel, we see our loving, sovereign father who allows and brings trial into our lives because he loves us and wants us to grow. We view trial as loving correction from a good dad. This is what Hebrews 12 is all about. And God disciplines whom he loves out of affection. And he exercises his fatherly fatherly love in their lives to grow us, to grow us to be more like Jesus. To grow us so that we'll, we'll want more of him. So when trial comes, the gospel doesn't ask, God, what are you punishing me for? It asks, God, what are you teaching me? How are you growing me? What good are you trying to produce in my life? What sin are you trying to shed me of? So that I can have you. So that I can want you more fully. And when trial comes, because it will, you might not see what God's doing right away. And it is hard and it is difficult But afterwards, when the trial has produced in you the fruit of righteousness and Christ-likeness, you look back and you are glad that your loving father loved you enough to deal with you on your sin, so as to shed you from it, so that you want more of him. And so this is religion. That's religion. Right there. But what does religion produce? What are the results of religion in our lives? Ultimately, religion results in either one of two ways. Pride or despair. Pride or despair. Religion leads to pride and smugness and haughtiness and a judgmental attitude and a sense of superiority because you've done it. You've performed well. You've outperformed everyone by your own effort. Your moral record is better than everyone else's. Therefore, you look down on others who are lazy and immoral and not as disciplined as you. It's pride, and it's the worst sin of all. It's pride, and for religious people, this comes out in their prayer lives. I think of Luke 18.10, where a Pharisee standing on the street corner. and Basically, his prayer is this. God, thank you I'm not a sinner like this guy. Amen. That's how religion prays. God, I thank you. I'm not a sinner like this guy. Amen. It's like no one wants to be in this guy's small group. (laughs) You call up Pastor Brad and you're like, Brad, I don't know about this guy that you gave me into my small group. It's like he's confessing everyone else's sin. No one wants to be around people like this. It's pride, self-righteousness, smugness, haughtiness. And this is why religion is especially dangerous, because it sees no need for the gospel. The gospel of grace makes no sense at all to those who morally outperform others. It only makes sense to sinners who are broken and fully aware of their own failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a savior prideful religious types are blind to their true condition and they have no need for the gospel or repentance. That's for the bad guys. That's for the sinners. And since that's not me, I don't need it. Religion can be really tricky because religious people appear to be very spiritual because they might view Jesus as their example. They might view him as their inspiration or even as their helper, but never as savior because that involves admitting your wickedness and lostness and your need for him. The next thing is despair. Religion produces despair. And this is the opposite camp of the proud. Those in despair are keenly aware of their own sin and their own failures, which is a really good start. But because religion relates to God on the basis of hard work and performance, you're never certain as to how much is enough. And you're always left wondering and obsessing over if you've done enough. Did I do a good job today? Is God pleased with me? I don't know. And this leads to much uncertainty about your own salvation. Religion really struggles with assurance. And someone whose salvation is dependent on their own performance is going to have a tendency to be very defeated and despairing because they're always failing. They're never living up to the standard. They're keenly aware of their own sin. And so they live in despair. And they lack certainty. And when asked if God loves them, all they can say is, I hope so. Maybe. He might. So what real hope do we have in the face of pride and despair? What real hope do we have in life? Friends, there is hope. I'm here to tell you today that there is hope in the gospel of grace. There is hope in Jesus And you don't need to look any further than the cross of Jesus Christ to see that God loves you immensely. He left his heavenly home for an earthly home to come here to rescue you from your sin. It is Christ is who our hope. It is Christ who is our certainty. It is Christ who is our righteousness. And we saw what religion produces, so what does the gospel produce? What are the fruits of the gospel? The gospel produces freedom. Freedom. Freedom from religion is found in the gospel of grace. Paul told the Galatians who were slipping back into religion in Galatians 5.1 that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom. We are free in Christ. In Christ we can be free. Be free from earning and meriting God's favor. Be free from self-righteousness. Be free from guilt-driven performance. Be free from pride and smugness and being a jerk. Be free from pride, despair, uncertainty, and doubt and fear. Be free to be honest and transparent about your real struggles and ditch the show. Ditch the mask. Be free to view even the worst of circumstances in your life as love and grace from a loving dad. Be free to put your confidence in Christ and trash the religious resume. Be free from wanting gifts over the giver. Be free to love God and serve God for God's sake. And not your own. Be free in Christ. And the gospel doesn't lead to pride or despair. Rather it produces in us a unique blend. Of humility and joy. And confidence in Christ. Humility. Joy and confidence. And it does so because of this. The gospel believes. That I am utterly sinful. And desperately lost. And at the very same time. I am loved and accepted in Christ. I am both extremely lost and extremely loved. In the gospel, we see that we are so lost that Jesus had to die to save me. But at the same time, I am so loved that Jesus was glad to die to save me. And this produces joy because he has done this for me. That Christ on our behalf accomplished what we could never do through works. And this produces confidence because I'm sure of his love for me in Christ. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has conquered my biggest enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And if Christ would do that for me while I was his enemy, then he values me infinitely, and nothing I can ever do will wear out his love for me. And that truth right there, realized and recognized in the heart, will transform you immensely. That will rock your world. That will alter your life. That will transform you at the deepest level. Religion produces either someone who's a jerk or someone who's dejected. And it will ultimately kill you. The gospel produces freedom, humility, and confidence, and joy. And leads to eternal life. But the last thing we need to see is that the gospel produces growth. The gospel produces growth. Look at what Paul says in Titus 2, 11 and 12. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And what Paul is saying here in Titus 2 is that grace is what saves us and grace is also what grows us. Grace, his undeserved, unmerited favor to those who deserve only his wrath, It's not only the thing we need to be saved, it is that thing we need to live and grow in the Christian life. Look at what Paul says. It is grace that is training us. It is grace that is teaching us and instructing us and pushing us and driving us towards a holy life. Grace alone is the motivation for obedience in the gospel. Grace alone is the only thing that is going to produce a Godward, selfless, long term perseverance and growth in the Christian life. Anything else is just religion. If it's not grace, it's religion. And my fear is that while we have many in here who believe the gospel, who love the gospel, you're not trying to earn your salvation by your works but you're trying to grow as Christians out of religion. And we sometimes fall into this thinking. We fall into this thinking that when when we have good days, where we get up and we read our Bibles, and we pray, and we sing praise songs on the way to work, and we're good, and we're obey, then God's happy with us, and so we feel confident before him. But on the days when we skip our devotions, because we push the snooze button 10 times, We're so rushing to get out of the house. We've barely remember to brush our teeth. And we meant to pray on the way to work, but I got sidetracked by the radio. And I meant to keep my cool at work, but I forgot and I blew up in sin. And I meant to be good, but I failed. Why is it on days like that that we feel as if God is angry and upset, and therefore we shy away from him? And then we shy away from him until we have a good day, and then we feel confident of God's love for us again. Why do we fall into that thinking? It's because we're relating to God based on our performance instead of his love for us in Christ. If I obey, then God will love me. That's religion. Listen, Christian, you are not saved by grace And matured by works. And in those moments. Instead of taking our sin. And running to the cross in repentance. And embracing and receiving the grace offered there. We try to earn our way back into a right standing with good works. And I'm not saying the Christian life doesn't involve obedience. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what Paul is teaching here. Certainly it involves hard work and discipline. The question is this. What is motivating us? What is motivating? What is driving us? Is it fear? Is it fear that God will punish us or revoke his love? Is it guilt that's driving us? See, I truly believe that religion is the deep default setting of our hearts. And we're always going to have this tendency to slip back into a mode of self-salvation where we're trying to earn God's favor and love. Christian, gospel-believing Christian, religion is alive and well in our hearts. And we have to fight against it through the gospel. We need to flog our hearts and minds with the gospel. As Luther said it, we need to beat it into our heads continually. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And allow the gospel of grace to grow deep, deep roots in our hearts. And let it transform us in every part of our lives as we believe it and trust in it more and more deeply. We need to think out the gospel in our lives. God's grace is what we need, and we need it big time. And in closing, I just want to say one last thing. If you're here, you're religious, non-Christian, you don't need religion, you need Jesus. And if you're here, and you are a Christian, you don't need religion, you need Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Amen.